that makes suing me pretty impossible. And while people are taking their seats, um, let me remind people again that the uh, website for the symposium and the blog going forward is cybersecuritycommunity.org. And also let me mention that if you would like to know more about the journal sponsoring the symposium, which is IS, a journal of law and policy for the Information Society, uh, that website is is-journal.org. And you can see uh, the proceedings from last year and previous year's symposia as well. Um, and I'm delighted to uh, call to order our third panel of the day on making sound cybersecurity policy. As we observe in the uh, written program, uh, any appropriate national response to cyber threats, and we've certainly heard this from the panels already, are going to entail considerations of science, uh, engineering, economics, law, policy, and maybe I should add, uh, after Michelle's presentation, psychology, uh, since she emphasized that this is a human, uh, even more than an engineering set of problems. Uh, key decision makers may well not be expert in all of these things, to put it mildly, and so the obvious questions are, uh, what is our policy-making apparatus uh, most likely to misunderstand or get wrong? What are the risks here? Um, what, if anything, uh, might we want to happen in order to get sound policy to emerge? We have four super, superb panelists to focus on these questions and uh, to maximize their time for presentation and your time for questioning. Uh, I will just introduce them all four very briefly at the outset. Uh, fuller biographies, of course, appear in the program. So in the order in which uh, they're seated from uh, my right to left, your left to right. Uh, Sasha Meinrath is director of the Open Technology Initiative of the New America Foundation. Um, sitting next to me is uh, Herb Lin, the chief scientist for the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board of the National Research Council of the National Academies. To my immediate left is Greg Nojime, senior counsel and director for the Fre project on freedom, security, and technology at the center for Democracy and Technology. And at the end of the table is Paul Rosenzweig, a principal at Red Branch Consulting, former Deputy Assistant for Policy at uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and a regular writer on privacy and security issues uh, for the Heritage Foundation. So we have a politically inclusive panel comprising a scientist, a technologist, and two lawyers. Uh, I can only hope we match the previous panel in terms of our level of rambunctiousness. Uh, and as with the other panels, e each person will have up to 15 minutes for prepared remarks, and then we'll open the floor. Sasha? Thank you. Well, I'll get us started with maybe a little bit of rambunctiousness. Uh, I would say that when Peter first asked me to present here, fall of 2010, that uh, the world of cybersecurity, at least my small slice of it, was a markedly different place. Uh, and I would say that the focus was really on hardening systems and surveillance and catching terrorists and, you know, piracy and all of these things. And that this kind of cold warrior mentality was quite ascendant in D.C. circles. And I would say that since then, a lot has changed, which I'll touch on momentarily. But before we get to sort of modern, contemporary discussions, I want to focus back on kind of how things have really morphed in recent years around cybersecurity. In 2005, I was part of a group of folks that were doing Katrina emergency disaster response, setting up communication systems after the hurricane. In three weeks, we built a three-state-wide communications network. And often, we were the only 
communication system post-Katrina that was operational in these areas that we were working. And when we ran into major cybersecurity problems is once order was established, uh, where we were being told things like, you can't work on this equipment because you haven't got the right certification. And when we said, well, we set up the equipment in the first place, that didn't matter. I'll give you a case in point of how ridiculous this can get. Uh, in post-Katrina, we set up a wireless network in New Orleans itself. And after Katrina, it turned out that this network, I kid you not, was too fast. That a state law had been made that a free network couldn't be as speedy as the network we'd done for, for Katrina response. And so they actually had to shut down the network for the time until they could lessen the speed on the network so that it would be compliant with state law. Now, all of the lessons that we learned were actually quite well documented. We testified at field hearings for the FCC, put out like a 50-odd page report saying, here's all the lessons learned. Here's how you actually build a secure cyber infrastructure, both pre- and post-disaster. In 2008, I was involved in a, with a group of folks that ended up uh, leading a Department of Transportation roundtable. In this case, it was really focused on intelligent transportation systems. And on the one side, you had sort of uh, this group of open technology experts, this huge consortium of uh, really unbelievably savvy folks that had been living and breathing these technologies for quite some time. On the other, you had uh, what I'll call sort of the industry representatives, and they were there uh, at the behest of Vice Admiral Thomas Barrett, the then uh, Deputy Secretary of Transportation. And they had, I always remember this quote because it is hilarious to those of us in the know. Uh, we had a, one of the members of this industrial consortium talk about how uh, free and open source software is a, a great idea but inherently insecure. And that, that's why he was suggesting that we use Red Hat at the most. For those who don't know, Red Hat is in fact an open source system given away for free to non-commercial users. So at this meeting, it was very clear that the real search was for like the big red easy cybersecurity button. They were just like, show me how to make cybersecurity happen on intelligent transportation systems and what's the product that I need. And things like privacy, interoperability, distributed re redundancy, the things that actually lead to that were pretty much ignored. They ended up in this 80-odd page report but nothing ever happened with them. Now, it's ironic that today there's actually, not today, but within the next few weeks there's going to be a White House summit that kind of dusts off the exact same conversation we were having three years ago and will probably end in the same kind of stagnation, documentation without any meaningful change. In 2010, actually just this last fall, about the same time that Peter asked me to come here and talk, uh, we focused a lot on... Uh, smart grid technologies, and once again came out with this notion of uh, open, interoperable platforms, consumer privacy, all the things that we felt were really important if you're talking about a cyber secure network. Almost every other, in fact, we may have been the only commenters in this Department of Energy proceeding that looked at these things. Almost everyone else was looking at like return on investment, monetary savings, et cetera, as if somehow that was a proxy for cyber security. So I want to bring us back to where I began. So what changed post-fall of 2010 
what's changed between then and today? And I think it's pretty obvious, right? We have Egypt and Tunisia and Libya, Yemen, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, you know, Kuwait, Sudan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now all of a sudden we started thinking about like, hmm, what does cybersecurity mean? Maybe it doesn't mean hardening of systems. Maybe it means if you really want a system that's secure and stable, you need to start addressing things like authoritarian regimes and state actors. You need to start looking at the architectures of these networks. And what I would posit is that for the past decade, uh, what we've seen time and time and time again is really that the single greatest threat to cybersecurity are telecom providers and governments that uh, have often deployed and built and controlled incredibly and unnecessarily fragile architectures that have created these central command and control points. These are like lifting up a gigantic flagpole in the middle of the lightning storm and wondering like what's going to happen when all of your data is in this really secure single location. I can tell you what an average hacker is going to say. And of course this privacy invasive security mechanism. Now the purpose, the stated purpose of this is clearly to you know, fight terrorism, fight piracy, etc. But what's the outcome? Well the real impact has been to spur development of circumvention technologies that make legitimate law enforcement near on impossible over the longer term. So I would say that we, we need to fundamentally rethink what cybersecurity actually means. Like what takes down networks? Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, dictators, you know, bad software upgrades, you know, pushed out to entire clusters of communications. It's surprising how often your cell phone actually doesn't work at about the same time that they're doing a network upgrade. This happened to me yesterday in uh, National Airport in Washington, D.C. Uh, and of course, you know, security flaws, right? And I don't want to pick on Microsoft, but as the number one platform, I would say that like, yes, there have been flaws, mistakes were made. Now within the global justice movement, I would say that these notions have been known for years. And back in the late 1990s when I was cutting my teeth on cybersecurity, the main goal for us was really protecting our cyber communications from security, i.e. the government. And we began developing sort of distributed communications, distributed infrastructure, culminating in the Battle of Seattle, right? We all think of like Tunisia or Egypt of this spontaneous gathering. I will merely point out that Seattle 1999 Massive, unexpected protests shut down the WTO proceedings there. It was unprecedented. And it was like Tunisia light. <laughs> now, in response, the U.S. government has begun a multi-year draconian effort, I would argue, to suppress and eliminate these technologies. They've arrested random people of interest. They've illegally shut down and served seizures, uh, <laughs> seized servers. Sorry. And they've infiltrated what they considered sort of the command infrastructure of this new movement. None of those worked, right? And in fact, if you do today a, a Google search for Indie Media and Electronic Frontier Foundation, you will find that they lost pretty much every single court case that was brought against them. So fast forward half a decade to, dead, to today, and I would argue that these technologies are more successful, more secure, more distributed, and more used than ever before. And in essence, because security officials ignored, trampled over human civil rights, they actually created this impetus for an explosion of new circumvention technologies, the things that now keep cybersecurity experts awake at night.
So Tor, WikiLeaks, PGP integration and security, and almost every email program if you want it. Distributed and encrypted file sharing, which we were talking about last night. Uh, all driven by what I'd say is an overzealous, often US-led effort to crush these nascent technologies. So ironically, today with internet freedom being our official foreign policy, the same tools that were being used for organizing and were considered threats are now being used for liberation by the exact same government. So the wheels of government obviously move very, very slowly, and that's like at max warp speed. Uh, today I would say that the Cold War warrior mentality has come up against this internet freedom fighter agenda, and cybersecurity in particular is kind of the main battleground over which people are arguing and debating. Now I would say that this is very much still a pitched battle, and I'm cautiously optimistic, although I'll stress cautious, uh, that decision makers are beginning to understand what a new version of cyber, a more modern version of cybersecurity might look like. So last year, in meetings with a number of senior government officials, I uh, presciently, I'll say, made sort of a dual prognosis. And it went like this. One, it's only a matter of time before an authoritarian regime shuts down the internet. And two, today we have the technology available right now to build a secure cyber communications infrastructure around the globe that implements these kinds of new technologies that have been proofed out over the past decade and would lead to a far more secure cyber secure outcome. So at the time, six months ago, uh, it was sort of one of these tinfoil hat responses. The room goes quiet, everyone looks at you, they sort of like nod, smile kind of a little bit worriedly and then move on in the agenda. But today, our, our assessments are very much desired <laughs> by those same folks. Uh, and so fast forward to the past two months, and this comes down to sort of the excuse of why I haven't written all of this down yet in a paper. <laughs> so over the past two months, the State Department actually asked me and my team to put together a blueprint for what this initiative would look like, how it would work. And we completed it and turned it in, and I kid you not, at 10.59 last night, uh, which is one hour before the deadline, I'll say. Uh, but right now the ball is firmly back in the government's court. And for me, the real question and the end to the story then becomes over this next month, you know, will this kind of cold warrior mentality win out? Will we continue to ignore or worse yet attempt to lock down these technologies in the name of cybersecurity? Or will this internet freedom idea win out so that people will start thinking about cybersecurity in terms of the necessity of integrating human civil rights and global justice? Thanks. Aha, here they are. Good. Um, so I was asked to, to talk a little bit about threat assessment uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, in cyberspace and, and the, the premise being you can't do good policy if you can't do good threat assessment. And so I'm going to take the subsidiary question of can you do good threat assessment. Um, and the, the, the bottom line on that is it's really hard. But let me, 
just to, to orient you a little bit, this is a quick uh, summary of the sort of the difference between kinetic operations and, and uh, things that happen in the kinetic world and things that might happen in the, in the cyber world, um, things that Intel analysts might pay attention to, right? Um, the, the conflict space is largely separate for kinetic. Uh, the conflict space is largely separate from those of, of civilians. Um, offense and defensive technologies are sort of in rough balance, more, you know, often anyway, not all, you know, not there are some times when it's not true, but it's more or less true. Um, you can presume attribution. Uh, the capabilities of non-state actors are small. Um, distance matters. We've had oceans protecting us for a long time. National boundaries are really important. Uh, it's a really big deal when you cross a national boundary with uh, military forces. Um, clear lines between attacks and spying. Uh, you usually don't confuse one with the other, and you can sort of predict the effect of uh, kinetic operations. Um, none of these things is true in cyber. Okay, so the space where of conflict, uh, if you're going to have conflict, is where civilians live and work. Um, offense almost always beats defense. Uh, hard to do attribution. Non-state actors are a big deal here. Uh, the internet erases distance. Um, goes through national boundaries, uh, you know, quite easily. Uh, attacks and spying are very hard to distinguish, and it's hard to predict the uh, effect. So, so it's a fun funny space to be in. Okay. Um, and here, I just want to say, if you're going to take a look at intelligence, looking at, for example, at, at kinetic and cyber weapons, it's various. It, it, it's a very different game too. Okay. Um, there's physics. Uh, that we understand in, under, in trying to understand the capabilities of uh, kinetic weapons, and there's experience with comparable weapons. Not true in cyberspace there. There isn't any good physics for it. There's no good equivalent of a blast radius in, in, with a, a cyber weapon. Um, uh, and, and it's a strong function of the, the interaction between the capabilities, the characteristics of the weapon, and those of the defender. Uh, it's possible to have a very, very impotent cyber weapon uh, when the defender hardens his target in a certain way, uh, and to have a very potent cyber weapon if the defender doesn't. Um, uh, the, in the kinetic space, numbers matter a lot, right? Number of weapons that the other guy has is a big deal. Uh, the number of cyber weapons, what do you even mean by that? The number of, copy, number of CD-ROMs with a certain program uh, on it? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and so, you know, the number doesn't matter uh, of identical weapons doesn't doesn't matter. And it's sort of maybe it's the variety. You might want to think about the potency of a cyber arsenal in terms of uh, a wide variety. The the more diverse the number of weapons are, or something like that. But it certainly isn't the number of CD-ROMs. Um, uh, the number of soldiers in kinetic space makes a big difference, right? If you have an army of, of a thousand versus an army of a million, that matters a lot. Um, number of cyber soldiers doesn't seem to matter very much. It's probably much more a function, your cyber capability is probably uh, much more a function of the smartest guys that you have, uh, sorry, smartest people that you have um, uh, who are uh, working on this stuff. Uh, and they can then replicate their efforts to be distributed uh, freely. So it's not, it's not the number of people with computer science degrees or something like that. That doesn't tell you very much at all. Um, in kinetic space, you get 
information by watching the other guy's exercises. How do you do that in cyberspace? This is very, very difficult. Okay. And then there's the question of intent. Okay. Um, the primary thing to think about here, I think, is that the, uh, you, you try to assess an adversary kinetic capability in the context of overall military, of over military hostilities, over the, where there's an action, what are they going to do if they go to war or if they try to do something uh, to you. Cyber is a very different game. You have to assess their intent in the context of unfriendly uh, actions short of overt hostilities as well as going into overt hostilities. So it encompasses the whole spectrum of unfriendly actions. Okay? And of course that's a much bigger space than just overt hostilities and more. Okay? So under the, you, you, what you would expect under these circumstances is a full court press of unfriendly actions. So you know, from, you know, from, very, from things that are fully allowable under international law, that is spying and cyber exploitation, all the way up to, you know, what would it mean to conduct a large-scale cyber attack against the strategic, strategic cyber attack against the infrastructure of the United States? You have to worry about that entire range. Um, and of course, there's attack identification. Even knowing that an attack has happened is difficult, uh, right? That, that what, how do you know when you've been attacked in some large-scale systematic way? Um, and then you have the, all the well-known problems about attribution. So which means that what you get out of all of this is that compared to the, to the kinetic case, the evidence that you get for, that's country-specific and, and so on isn't very good. Okay, so the bottom line on, on this, so what you have is both, in, you have an analyst and policymakers who are inexperienced, they have little hard information, they're in unfamiliar situations, and they're sort of operating in a general atmosphere of tension, right? So, they often make worst case assessments. Okay. So this is a quote from a guy who was doing critical infrastructure protection in the Department of Justice in the Clinton administration. I've seen too many situations where government officials claimed a high degree of confidence as to the source, intent, and scope of an attack, and it turned out they were wrong on every aspect of it. That is, they were often wrong, but never in doubt. Okay. Um, that happens in, opera in operations. And it also happens in doing analysis as well. And so there are many, the point of all of this is just to say that there are many pressures, um, influences for analysts to produce worst case analyses and for policymakers to draw worst case conclusions. Now, am I saying that worst case conclusions here are wrong? No, absolutely not. The God's eye assessment may in fact coincide with the worst case uh, uh, assessment. But the point here is that the uncertainties are really, really large. They're even larger than they are for doing traditional analysis. And the bottom line here is that, I mean, I wish I had an answer for this, but it's just, you know, the, the bottom line is sort of anodyne. It's be more careful, right? You've got to keep in mind the large range of uncertainties. So the, that, that's why I think it's just really, really hard to come up with good threat assessments in, in, in this environment. Can you hear me? <laughs> Hi, I'm Greg Nojain with the Center for Democracy and Technology. First, Peter, thank you, and thanks to the Information Society Journal for uh, inviting us to this uh, event. I appreciate it. Um, I want to give you kind of a bird's eye view of what's happening in Washington on cybersecurity policy right now. And, and really, the, the city is awash with cybersecurity proposals. And the challenge for policymakers is to pick from among them the 
the ideas that will really move us forward in cybersecurity and leave some of the bad ideas behind. Um, there's some what I would call low-hanging fruit, um, th uh, uh, ideas that ought to have been put in place long ago. Things like um, strengthening the government procurement system so that the government buys more secure hardware and software, updating the Federal Information Security Management Act that requires agencies to have uh, more secure networks, make that, give that some more teeth um, and to make it more meaningful. But there's another set of policy ideas in Washington that I call the cybersecurity ideas whose time has not come and shouldn't. These are the ideas that need to be left on the cutting room floor, if you will. Um, and I want to go through um, four of them real quickly. And the reason they should be left uh, behind is because uh, in some cases they would um, do too much damage to another value like privacy or innovation. And in other cases, they would actually undermine cybersecurity itself. Take the internet kill switch. Um, issue first. Uh, I, I want to say at the outset, uh, yes, the Internet does not have a kill switch. The President does not have a, a switch at his desk, and the bill never said the President ought to have kill switch authority. What the bill, and it was uh, uh, a bill out of the Commerce Committee initially, what the bill did say was in an emergency that the President declares, he ought to have the authority to be able to order covered critical infrastructure to stop or limit internet communications. Um, and I think in that bill it was a full stop at that point. Well, what did that mean? When you kind of unpack it, you have to understand that the critical infrastructure that they were talking about included these internet backbone systems that carry a lot of the internet's traffic. That piece of knowledge to the equation, you do see that there is there would have been um, authority for the president to order uh, a significant uh, part of private-to-private uh, -private communications to be limited in some way or to be shut down. Um, so that's where the debate came from. And it's not, it's not uh, um, a completely crazy request. The theory is that there might be, for example, a nuclear power plant whose system needs to be isolated. And it might be useful for the information system that serves that system to limit the traffic that goes to it in some way. But the question really is whether it's the government that ought to be the one that makes that decision. And the answer to that question is probably not. Because probably the people who are best positioned to make that decision about isolating a system are the people who run it, the owners and the operators of those systems. Uh, the government might have some knowledge that would help that decision better be made. If it does, the answer is not to give the government that authority, but rather to give the owners and operators of the system that additional knowledge. Um, the interesting thing about that proposal is that, would, that it would have created um, perverse incentives. And those perversions uh, are these. First, if I'm the owner or operator of a system and I have information that shows that I've suffered a breach or that I'm vulnerable in some way, the last people who I'm going to share that information with are the people who could order me to be shut down. 
So it would have actually uh, hindered cybersecurity information sharing that we're trying to encourage today. Uh, the other um, issue is that if there is a situation where an owner or an operator of a system believes it needs to be shut down for the good of um, that system itself or for the good of uh, its customer, um, they might delay. If they know that the president has the authority to issue the order for them to shut down, they might delay and wait for that order to come in. Uh, and the consequence of that would be uh, possibly more damage to the system because of the delay. The reason they might wait for the order is because with the order would come some protection uh, against liability for damage that might be caused downstream. The second cybersecurity idea whose time hasn't come is um, putting the Department of Defense um, in a more central lead role for securing civilian government uh, systems and for working with the private sector to secure its systems. Right now, that responsibility lies with the Department of Homeland Security, and the DOD secures military systems primarily. The problem is the Department of Homeland Security isn't doing as good a job as most people would like it to do. It's been criticized by the Government Accountability Office. Temptation is that because NSA has a lot more experience uh, in protecting systems and in cracking other countries' systems, and because Cyber Command, the newly stood up entity at uh, DOD, uh, is going to have a lot of resources and already has a lot of resources, the temptation is to have them do it all, to have them take responsibility um, for civilian government and for working with the private sector to secure its systems. At the end of the day, though, I think that could actually undermine cybersecurity. And the reason um, goes to what Paul Nicholas from uh, Microsoft was talking about earlier. Cybersecurity involving the private sector depends on trust. And trust depends on transparency. A company has to know how the data it shares with the government is going to be used. Is it going to go to competitors? Or is it going to go um, to some other place where we uh, wouldn't want it to go? And um, without transparency, you undermine trust. And for very good reasons, uh, NSA and Cyber Command operate in a less transparent way than, for example, Department of Homeland Security and other civilian government um, entities operate. Another um, issue relating to transparency is accountability of the government for failures in cybersecurity and for abuses of rights. Uh, and this goes back to the issue that I was um, raising with um, Mark Young earlier. Uh, the terrorist surveillance program, which the NSA executed in the United States, involved what many people believe was unlawful surveillance in violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which requires a court order generally for surveillance conducted in the United States when the person being targeted is in the United States. That program was continued for years after 9-11 secretly. Uh, I think it undermined public trust in the NSA and um, um, I think would do damage to any um, effort to conduct um, cybersecurity activities um, as a lead entity 
in the private sector? What's the alternative, given that NSA and, uh, has a lot of uh, uh, expertise and the Cyber Command has the resources? A good alternative, and in this I think, Mark, we agree on, is um, this uh, September 27 memorandum of agreement between the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense. It envisions a sharing of expertise and of personnel um, so that Department of Homeland Security um, can get more up to speed and better do its job and so that there can be some synergy between the two um, entities. Uh, the third um, cybersecurity idea whose time hasn't come is that the government itself ought to get into the business of monitoring private networks for cybersecurity purposes. Now, I don't think that this is something that would happen as a policy decision directly. It's rather something to watch as a byproduct of other efforts. Um, one of them was mentioned earlier, the Einstein Intrusion Detection and Prevention System. Einstein is about monitoring government agency networks for malware, keeping it out or at least detecting it, and then reporting when it's seen to US CERT at the Department of Homeland Security, which in turn reports to law enforcement and intelligence agencies information that would help them prosecute their missions. So Einstein is really a package. It's, uh, it's detection, prevention, and reporting. It's important, though, to know that Einstein doesn't work on the agency's network. Einstein operates on the network of the uh, communications provider to the agency. So one important thing to watch in Einstein is whether it is reliably focusing only on communications going to or from a government agency and not on other communications that are private to private on that um, um, provider's network. Look, if you're communicating with the government, you, if, you're, if you're sending an email to the government, you can't complain that the government is reading your email. Uh, on the other hand, if you're not, and you're engaging in private to private communications, well, certainly the government should have no um, role in looking at those communications. Uh, the other issue about Einstein when it comes to government monitoring private networks is the notion that Einstein ought to be extended to the private sector. This could be on a mandatory or on a voluntary basis. Um, what would that mean? That's really the important question. If, you, if the extension of Einstein to the private sector means that it comes not just with the technology and not just with what Stuart Baker calls the secret sauce of uh, intrusion detection, which is the um, classified signatures. Um, that would be a good thing, sharing that with the private sector and allowing it to use that information would be a good thing so that it could defend its own networks. It's that backhaul, the reporting back to US CERT the, and its reporting onto law enforcement and intelligence agencies that's where um, civil libertarians say, hold it, wait a minute. This is like making the provider an agent of surveillance for the government. And so that's probably a line that um, we wouldn't want to cross. 
the third aspect about government monitoring private networks that I wanted to mention was the danger that information sharing for cybersecurity purposes, good cybersecurity purposes, um, shouldn't go on steroids and uh, really do a lot of damage to privacy. Now, you can imagine an information sharing regime that is controlled and limited, where the information that actually needs to be shared uh, is identified and shared under a legal regime that is very protective of privacy. And you can imagine something on the opposite end of the world where a provider uh, shares a significant portion of its traffic with the government and says, what do you see here? Help us clean it up. It's that latter um, kind of information sharing that I think we need to um, um, avoid. It's important when looking at this issue to remember that the law already provides a lot of authority for providers to monitor their own systems for uh, cybersecurity problems. They can monitor their networks for defensive reasons. There is an issue, though, about whether the law permits them to share information for the defense of others. And there may need to be a very limited exception to the Electronic Communications Privacy Act to permit such sharing. I'll close with one more um, idea uh, that ought to be, uh, uh, whose time hasn't come. That's uh, not really a cybersecurity idea in and of itself, but rather um, an idea that has been promulgated to further um, surveillance capabilities. And that's the idea to extend mandates in the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, COLEA, uh, from where they rest now uh, with telecommunications carriers and um, providers of broadband service and interconnected VoIP, from them to the providers of um, communications services, point-to-point uh, -point encrypted services like Skype, um, the um, um, BlackBerry Enterprise Service, and other um, communication services that are not now covered. Um, the FBI has a program. It calls it the Going Dark Program. It's concerned that it's having trouble uh, conducting surveillance of these new technologies. And the idea that's been floated is to extend mandates to these new technologies that would essentially require innovators to build in backdoors to facilitate law enforcement surveillance. The problem with this idea is not just that it would inhibit innovation, maybe even drive it overseas, but also that it would undermine cybersecurity. And the reason is that if you build in a backdoor for FBI surveillance, you're building in a backdoor that the bad guys are going to be looking for and might try to go through as well. So let me close by saying that um, Washington is just filled with ideas on how to deal with cybersecurity. I've outlined a handful here that I think we should leave behind and explore alternatives to, and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, and, and thanks. Uh, I want to as well express my thanks to you, Peter, and to the staff of the journal for uh, what, organizing what I think has been one of the best organized uh, events that I've been to, and uh, I've enjoyed my time here, so I wanted to express that. Uh, raise your hand if you own a computer. Come on, raise your hand if you own a computer. Raise your other hand if you've used it to get onto the web sometime in the last week, right? <laughs> okay, now wave your hands around. 
Okay, you're all awake now, that's good. Um, yeah, we're getting towards the end of the day. But the, what that does demonstrate is that you're all consumers of cybersecurity policy in some sense or another, which is to say that though Washington is awash with ideas, and frankly, the reason it's awash with ideas is because it's also awash with money, um, uh, all of what they decide there affects everybody uh, all two billion plus people who are on the internet, certainly for America, all 300 million plus who are on, on the web here. So my, what I want to do today is talk about how we make policy in Washington and how that's going to affect cybersecurity policy. There's a great quote that I love. It says, law, and I would say, and policy, like sausage, ceases to inspire respect in proportion as we know how they are made, right? Everybody's heard that, laws is like sausage, you don't want to know how it's made, right? That quote is often attributed to uh, Germany's Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, right? And the best part about that quote, well, it's got two great parts. First, it's right. Making policy is an ugly business. It involves a lot of compromises. It often involves lots of trade-offs for which there really are no answers, commensurate values. Uh, it involves a lot of dirty dealings sometimes in Washington. But the other part of that quote that I really like is that Bismarck didn't say it, right? Uh, it was actually originally said by a guy named John Godfrey Saxe, an American uh, lawyer, uh, about 30 years before it was ever attributed to Bismarck. And what that kind of demonstrates for me is that one of the dangers in all policymaking is not what you know, but what you think you know that you don't really know. And that actually picks up on what Herb was saying before. Everybody in Washington knows a lot, uh, but they're not really sure whether what they know is right. Um, the way I see it, there are two types of policy errors that could attend the making of cybersecurity policy. One set is utterly uninteresting because cybersecurity policymaking is not, is not immune from the same sorts of pressures that attend healthcare policymaking or tax care policymaking, right? There's going to be regulatory capture. There's going to be information asymmetries. There's going to be uh, incommensurate values, uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and indeed, as Michelle uh, Kwan, I think, said, uh, one of the real problems with policymaking in all areas is that we tend to make policy in crisis mode rather than through considered judgments. And that's going to be no different in the telecoms, IT, cyber area than it is in any other area of law uh, and, or, and policy. And if we want to talk about those, we can talk about them at length. But they're not interesting for a conference on cybersecurity. Uh, what's interesting for a conference on cybersecurity is the question of whether or not there is any difference about the cyber realm. I was going to call it the cyber domain, but I've listened to Martin, and I'm not allowed to call it a domain anymore. Is there anything that's different, thank you, yeah, about the cyber realm uh, that makes policy making different, harder, less effective there? Is there something that we don't know about the cyber domain that really matters? Uh, I submit to you that the answer is yes. Um, traditional policymaking in Washington has a host of techniques that it trots out uh, at any time to make policy about an issue. They go by lots of names. You've probably heard of some of them. Risk assessments, cost-benefit analysis, public choice theory, uh, red teaming, uh, complex systems analysis. All of these are very traditional methods of deciding what policies are. Strategic planning, matching ends to ways and means, right? Um, all of them are hierarchical. The internet, fundamentally, uh, if it's different at all, it's that it's not that hierarchical. 
Uh, one of my colleagues at, at uh, who's a uh, uh, law professor at the National Defense University, says we're taking a Ford-based uh, policymaking process and trying to use it to figure out how to run a spaceship, right? And I think that that's pretty much the right analogy. What we haven't come to grips with is what is different about the Internet that makes it the spaceship, or if actually that's probably not a good translation because at least they're both modes of, of transportation. We're taking a transportation system uh, uh, management system and using it to make applesauce or something like that. So what are the things about the Internet that make it unique that we haven't internalized yet? I think the most significant of them that we haven't talked about is the rapidity with which the Internet acts. It, that's rapidity in two different ways. Uh, one is, and this picks up on something that, that Herb kind of alluded to, uh, but we haven't really discussed, is the rapidity of action in the Internet. The military will tell you that their standard rules of, for, of, of the use of force require and allow a commander who is under attack to fire back, right? And that makes good sense. If you're a military commander and you own a tank regiment and all of a sudden the rockets are coming in, you're allowed to figure out who, where they're coming from and shoot back. Uh, normally, that's a pretty easy decision to make, and you can make that in real time without running the risk of shooting at the wrong place, pretty much. In the Internet, that's wrong. That doesn't happen anymore. Yet, if you ask our cyber command today what their rules of engagement are for what they think might be attacks on American cyberspace, they'll tell you, and Lieutenant General Alexander said this at his confirmation hearings, that they think, as a, at least as a starting point, that the traditional hierarchical rules on the use of force apply in cyberspace as well. Um, many suggest that maybe we should reverse the paradigm and think uh, the opposite. My, my friend Martin Lubicki has actually said uh, that in, in a paper he wrote for Rand. The urgency of retaliation is governed by the capacity of the human mind to be convinced that there will be retaliation, that we need a deterrence model, which is something I asked about during the lunch uh, uh, session, rather than by the need to immediately respond with a corresponding military attack to disable the attacking computer before it strikes again. Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. What I do know is that we haven't even begun to think about how that sort of rapidity of action in the Internet uh, affects how we're going to need to change our policies in cyberspace. But even more fundamentally than that is what we haven't come to grips with is how the cyber realm, the cyber domain, uh, enhances the rapidity of change. Uh, Nelson Tal uh, Nassim Tlaib, uh, he's the guy who wrote the book Black Swan, right, uh, pretty famous uh, in, the, in the econometric sphere where I spend a lot of my time. He says that because of the net, Events in the world cascade faster and deeper than ever before. And what that means fundamentally is that social change is happening at such a rapid pace uh, and in such a new set of dimensions that we cannot uh, rely upon traditional means of policymaking to catch up with change that is running ahead of us. Uh, think of uh, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya today. I mean, I actually feel a great deal of sympathy 
uh, for the Obama administration because they are using the 19th century policy-making decision model of bringing all the experts into a single room, talking about it, trying to figure out what your options are, what the costs are, uh, and, uh, and benefits of maybe arming the Libyan rebels or not arming the Libyan rebels, whether we should uh, support the, the Egyptian democracy revolution or not, what that will do to uh, critical American interests on oil or, or the Suez Canal, the whole host of issues that a responsible government will need to think about. I'm not minimizing that those are vital interests, but they're trying to make that decision in the realm of, uh, of, uh, of a policymaking process that is used to pulling out those issues from a, a large leviathan of governmental authority and presenting them to decision makers for decisions carefully boxed up where the president can, in the end, essentially check a box, you know, invade, you know, uh, uh, institute no-fly zone over Libya, or no, do not institute no-fly zone over Libya. Whereas what's really happening in the real world is that things like uh, the Facebook aspects of the Egyptian democracy revolution drive the social change so fast that we are no longer able uh, to keep up with it. I'll give you another example. We haven't talked about this one at all, but this one actually scares me because I don't think we've even begun to think about the implications of virtual worlds, right? There's a whole new world out there that doesn't really exist, but it really exists. Uh, who, who's heard of Second Life? Raise your hand. Okay, everybody's heard of Second Life. How many of you are on Second Life? Really, that's surprising. None of you? Wow. That, uh, the first time I've ever tried that and at an, in, and an information security conference. Um, you know, Second Life is this huge interactive domain of people who talk to each other and exchange ideas and goods. It is a separate economy, uh, just like the world of Warcraft is actually a separate economy. In the world of Warcraft, you trade magic swords, right? In Second Life, you change uh, uh, Second Life money for goods in Second Life. But anywhere that an economy exists, you're going to have all, all the sorts of things that come with an economy possibilities for fraud, possibilities for espionage, uh, possibilities for destructive activity, possibilities for theft. We've already seen in law enforcement money laundering through uh, Second Life. China has actually seen people uh, mark, uh, uh, you know, hedge against the yuan, uh, the, their currency, with Second Life dollars and has recently passed a law regulating that. Uh, because they don't like to see that. So, you know, when, until we come to understand the dynamic of the changed social environment, uh, we won't be able to make policy about it. And what my real fear is, is just about the time policymakers in Washington come to grips with what the virtual worlds are of Second Life and World of Warcraft, something else will come along. I don't know what it is because I'm not an innovator, but there'll be something brand new and that will pose equally uh, significant, if not more significant, um, uh, challenges to policymakers who are constantly trying to impose essentially the 19th and 20th century ideals of sovereignty and statehood into a construct that is non-hierarchical, has no borders, and as, uh, again, as, as uh, both Sasha and Herb said, has no, has no uh, limits on time or geography in any way. Until we get that right, until we internalize that, policy won't follow. There's a second piece of this that I want to talk about, um, 
and, and this will be the last piece that I, I bring, which is we also haven't come to understand how the cyber realm creates asymmetries in power. It used to be that the monopoly on the lawful use of force was held by states, and through that, they achieved their state objectives, whether they were good state objectives, like America's objective of ordered liberty, or bad state objectives, like the Soviet Union's objective of suppressing all dissent and, and dispute. Yeah, whatever the objectives were, it was the state monopoly of force that allowed them uh, to essentially steamroller over individual activity. That's changing today. It's, it's, it's going to go by the wayside. We see it already. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, Jeffrey mentioned the WikiLeaks and, and Anonymous. Um, you really should go back and study that. Here's, here's how that worked, uh, both in terms of transparency, giving individuals a better opportunity to enforce on their government's transparency, and in terms of actual competition with sovereigns. The transparency piece was fostered by, uh, presumably, Bradley Manning, though he's been charged but you know, not convicted, so he's entitled to presumption of innocence, and WikiLeaks. Uh, a couple of individuals, all of a sudden, were able to do what it would have taken a hundred spies a thousand years to do, steal 250,000 documents from the Department of State, post them on the web for everybody to see. Um, that kind of unilateral capability uh, and empowerment of individuals is something that's new and different, I think. It's not just more of the same, it's new and different. But even more significant was the actual ability of non-state actors to compete in cyberspace with sovereigns. I mean, the first, the first thing that happened was there was a bunch of denial of service attacks against WikiLeaks servers uh, by somebody. Nobody's quite sure who, but probably it was somebody who was at least uh, sympathetic to uh, America's interest in not having this sort of information uh, widely distributed. Uh, the response was for a disorganized, self-organized rather, group of anonymous people known as anonymous to uh, uh, adopt uh, uh, an operation. They styled it as a military operation, Operation Payback, um, where they would then uh, attack some of the uh, affiliated organs of the state. They may have mis misidentified them, but attacked them like MasterCard, PayPal, and see if they would be able to attack those in turn as part of this war. And the next step that, that Jeff didn't mention, but that is useful, is then somebody went and attacked the centralized hub where Operation Anonymous was coordinating its activity against um, uh, payback and uh, PayPal and Amazon and MasterCard. Now, uh, the anonymous group, I think it's fair to say, lost that first war. The sovereigns won. Uh, and they eventually found themselves unable to stop um, uh, the attacks uh, on WikiLeaks, though now the site has been mirrored, so maybe they haven't lost completely. But the next time around, they're going to do much better uh, at it than that. So I leave you with this thought, right? Until we come to grips with the rapidity of the Internet and the fundamental way in which the Internet creates asymmetries that empower individuals to the disadvantage of the nation state, we're not going to build good cyber policy. Um, if we ever understand that, and more importantly, change our policy-making processes so that they can get inside the innovation curve instead of being constantly six years behind 
the, or in Sasha's case, what is it, three years? Three years behind um, the innovation curve. Uh, we're, we're not going to make good policy. We're going to make policy for last year's problem or four years ago's problem. Thanks. Great. Questions? Um, very enjoyable. Um, one comment, one question for Greg. Um, one of the things I like about the Wikipedia and uh, WikiLeaks and Anonymous was that one of the myths out there about cyber conflict is that it's all speed of light. You know, you blink and you missed it. And I think this, it's interesting because it wasn't. You know, I mean, it was, if anything, slower than air battles, you know, in that, in that it's taken place over, over days, weeks, months. Um, Greg, a question for you. Um, the President already has significant authorities under the 1934 Com Act. Um, you know, at whether it's a threat of war or, or during war, to order the military to defend communication assets or to take communication assets down. That goes back from the World War I authorities so that at, uh, enemies couldn't, couldn't use com uh, communication towers and wireless to, to navigate off our coast. So I had somewhat dismissed what I was seeing about kill switch because I thought if the president needed to do the authority to do the things that you mentioned, he does. That was certainly the position in the White House um, when I was there, that we had the authority to do this if, if we really were at war. So I kind of dismissed a lot of the kill switch. Can, can you respond to that, and how do you, sure. how do you see that? Sure. I, I think that the 34 Act, first, its, it's, applic uh, its applicability is uncertain just because it's so old. When you read that, um, it, by the way, at the end of that act, it talks about um, the, that power um, that you were mentioning extending into the canal zone, the, the Panama Canal zone that we have no power over anymore. So just to, to put it in context, um, and I, I also don't know if it's ever been used. But at any rate, um, as I recall, the power to um, seize the assets, which is um, what would be how that statute would permit this shutdown to occur, occurs when we're at war. And query, when are we at war in this cybersecurity area? Are we already at war? Is, um, some people say, or are we never going to really be in a war because a war has to be a declared war under the statute? There is another provision um, that, that relates to emergencies and threats um, that doesn't require that we be at war, but it doesn't come with that authority to seize the asset and take it out of commission. So I, I think that the applicability of the statute is first uh, questionable to the context that we're talking about. And I would end with, if it is applicable and the president does have the authority, maybe it's time to look at limiting it. Yeah. Fair enough. I'll give, you, I'll give the entire panel a great hypothetical to answer this one with. Let's assume all of the same relationships that currently exist today between the public and private sector and amongst the different executive departments, okay? Um, and the current structure to set policy and guide government action in the event of a crisis, the current national security model that exists today. So the hypothetical is there's been a hack of a classified CIA database that has exposed the, the identities and names of non-official cover officers. That's one. Simultaneously, uh, the New York Stock Exchange has been brought down and the techs who are working on it right now don't know how long it's going to remain down. 
Um, and, and finally, there actually has been loss of life because the air traffic control system was crashed, and pardon the pun, airliners came down because of it. So that's the scenario, and, and you're the president or the national security advisor. How do you proceed with all of those relationships in place, and how do you do it in a timely manner that will defend the country and set the precedent for policy for years to come? I'll jump we're, right in. We're angels fear to tread. Oh, you want to go first, Shasser? Yeah, I'm going I'm to jump right into this because I, I think this goes to the heart of my thinking around cybersecurity. Far better use of incredibly talented people's time, energy, and expertise would be what do we do when a hurricane hits the country? Because we know that's going to happen, and it's going to happen in the next few years. I think once we solve all of these far more likely problems, then yes, then maybe we get to these kinds of hypotheticals and start preparing for them. The sad reality is we spend a hell of a lot of time preparing for like the meteor strike while you're skydiving instead of checking the parachute first. Uh, I worked for a while for Ed Meese, who used to be the Attorney General of the United States. And he had a wonderful phrase for his approach to decision-making in the Reagan White House, uh, which was, uh, don't just do something, stand there. Uh, which is to say, uh, I am not convinced. Uh, I, I, of course, you begin by trying to manage the immediacy of the problem. Um, you, you, you assign whoever is best suited to give the New York Stock Exchange techs whatever uh, assistance and expertise they, they the government might have, though I, I suspect they have none that's superior to the techs at the stock exchange. But if they do, God bless, we'll give them whatever they need. If they need a whole bunch of new servers, because the, the ones that they own are, are fundamentally corrupted, we'll break out a few from, from storage at, the, at Fort Drum and, and ship them to them, whatever. We can, we can do that. Um, likewise, um, uh, you, you take your air traffic control system and you transition it to something that, that uh, goes slower uses the old radio systems that, that presumably haven't been, uh, and, you, and you hold everything down until that, right? So you, you take those steps. But beyond that, beyond responding to the immediacy of the need, the goal here, uh, the, the tasking is, okay, it does look concerted, right? Three, three unlikely things happening before breakfast. I don't believe in the Red Queen. Tell me who did it. Tell me who did it. And if that takes a month, two months, six months, a year, um, we'll work on it. And while we're finding that out, figure out what we're going to do to destroy them so that they are back in the Stone Age for the rest of their lives, so that it never happens to America again. I, I say that a little facetiously because that would not be a, a proportionate response, and we want to observe the laws of armed conflict and make a proportionate response. But I think, I think fundamentally um, that, that that's the responsibility. Now, if you change this and you tell me that it's a non, that in the end, if we find out it's a state actor, then I, my, my model works. If you tell me that in the end I find out it's a non-state actor, this is al-Qaeda who has somehow, uh, notwithstanding Sasha's skepticism, you know, magnified its, its, uh, its cyber capabilities a thousandfold over where it is now and really developed something, then we face what is potentially a unique problem and I don't have an answer for it.
closer to your mic. Start. Yeah, so def definitely we need a lot more transsectoral thinking and what have you. Um, we clearly, but I, but I would argue, that, and everyone get your tomatoes out now, one of the biggest problems is we've got a bunch of lawyers making technical decisions, most of whom don't understand the technologies that they're making policy around. And this leads to all sorts of trouble. I mean, you know, Kalia, which was just mentioned earlier by, by Greg, is, is a technological impossibility with certain kinds of networks and therefore you have a law that is there irregardless of reality and we're seeing a, more and more of that kind of thinking and so yeah it's it is stunning to me the conversations that we have on a regular basis around these kinds of issues and a lot of it could be cut out if we had more engineers talking around these issues so that people understood the ramifications of decisions that were being made. But it's like in, in the same way that you have these asymmetries and people are certain but not, you know, clueless, like that happens all the time. On, like technology is sort of like the new magic, you know, people are just like, I don't know, there's a poof and then it works. And that's kind of their level of understanding when they're drafting up laws or regulations often. You're right but I think it's unrealistic, right? Uh, you know, I, I would agree completely that, that bad decision, bad policy-making processes produce generally bad decisions, but, and lack of complete information is an is a integral part of a bad policy-making process. Uh, on the other hand, um, we live in, I live in Washington, right? You know, Congress is not gonna stop just because it doesn't have all the information. The executive's not gonna stop. The press is not going to stop, right? DOD has to do something, right? If, if they have a buckshot Yankee happen to them, they're not going to say, oh, well, we can't really do anything about this until we solve the, the trusted identities problem, so we're just going to leave ourselves open to attack. Um, you know, so it, unfortunately, the reality of the world is that you have to run in parallel processes. I would say um, probably first do no harm is the, is the super operating principle that we should adopt, but notwithstanding that, I, I'm not convinced that we can enforce that against ourselves. We don't have the self-restraint. It's like being on a diet. So I can't refrain from abusing the, my access to the moderator's microphone to ask my own question uh, because it's sort of been running through my mind through a couple of panels, and it goes, I guess, directly to one of 
Greg's ideas, but it's also been a, a sort of theme of the conversation, and that, and that is the role of the Defense Department. And, and I want to preface this by saying that, um, you know, anybody who's worked in government has to be impressed by the depth of expertise and commitment of the Defense Department. And if you have the privilege of teaching at a, at a law school like Ohio State, you have a lot of students who've been in the military and you realize that, you know, by age 25 they've had life and death decision-making responsibility that, uh, you know, you will not have in your entire law teaching career. So I, I don't want to minimize at, at all, uh, you know, the capacities and, and intentions that, that they bring to this. But having said that, um, we've talked about a lot of different kinds of analogy, ways, a large, large part of the discussion today has been a kind of search for the right analogy from, you know, Jeffrey's saying the internet is a city, or are we looking for environmental norms? Uh, you know, uh, is this a domain or is it not a domain? So we're looking for a way of thinking about this. And Mark uh, Young correctly points out, well, if you think about it as a domain, we at DOD can bring you institutional structures, we bring you organization, equipment, training, all this capacity. But this is a very complex set of issues. DOD is a very, as Greg said, very um, confidential environment. And I wonder, and you know, if I were in DOD, what I would worry about is getting attacked. I mean, that's, you know, I'm getting graded at the end of the year by whether the United States stayed safe for the last 12 months. So in that environment, it strikes me that, number one, um, worst case scenarios are clearly going to proliferate uh, in the face of whatever uncertainty, e even in the face of the uncertainties that Herb identified. And you're going to have this endless series of technology vendors trying to sell enormously expensive uh, tools to avoid the worst case scenarios. And I just, maybe I'm just a 17th century guy stuck in, in 2011, but I just worry about making the kind of military capacity so central to, to our thinking about the systems. On the other hand, you know, maybe it's exactly the right way to go because, as Susan said, you know, the whole civilian military, you know, the law enforcement uh, warfare distinction is just breaking down. That's a, a rambling question. So I should say, so what do you think? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mark, do you want to say some more? Uh, sure. What, what uh, please say it at the mic so that it's picked up. Security going to look to. So even if it does, I'm, I'm not saying. 
saying that it's a pervasive opinion within the Pentagon that we don't want to do the mission, but even if it were, um, who else is going to do it? And like you said, at the end of the day, I'm graded on doing this. And most people take that responsibility very seriously. And I'm surprised that I built into my hypothetical those uh, existing authorities um, because the private sector has a role to play, but they're limited in what they can share with even DOD. So, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of folks who have a great deal of respect for that privacy and civil liberty concern within the Pentagon and DHS, but they're not really sure how to go about executing their responsibilities and stay compliant with the law at the same time. You know, it's, it's funny that, that it's, it's not in a lot of contexts where you say um, so-and-so isn't doing their job Therefore, I have to do it. You know, if you're in a in the private sector and your coworker, it would never be Paul, not doing his job. But if your coworker isn't doing his job, you know, there is a temptation to then do what they're doing. But your first reaction ought to be, he needs to do his job. We need to get him what he needs to do his job, or we need to fire him. I know mm, it's okay. Uh, but but really, uh, this notion that and, uh, DHS has, Department of Homeland Security has this mission of protecting um, <coughs> civilian government and of working with the private sector to protect its systems. It needs to do a better job. The alternative ought not to be that it abandons its mission because it's not doing as good a job as it ought to, and that we ought to be putting in place some uh, uh, help from the Department of Defense to help it do that job, and that we ought to be looking toward a model where that's a temporary arrangement and that they develop the capabilities themselves to do it themselves. Well, I think that, that brings us to 4 o'clock, so um, I want to thank the panelists and, um, ask, and ask everybody, maybe we can just take a 10-minute break because um, Christian has to take an early plane back to D.C., but our last uh, event of the day will be um, Christian Preek's uh, presentation on the Estonian perspective. We'll get to hear uh, what it felt like to be, you know, from a country that was clearly the subject of a, uh, a not so um, innocent uh, cyber form of cyber aggression, and um, uh, it'll be a great way to end the day. But please join me in thanking the panel. All right, but he's right too, which is, I mean, there was no. Thank you.